This is TDPS. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Are you sick of doing promos for my new books yet? That depends. Are we at the beach? Yes, we're at Sapphire Cove, the fictional Southern California resort featured in my new gay romance series coming in 2022. This is alarming. When did we go outside? You were transported by the powerful prose of C. Travis Rice. That's my new pen name devoted to steamy and emotional tales of romance between men. Yeah, no, that's not it. I was about to eat a sandwich in the studio, and now I'm being harassed by seagulls. Brandon, get rid of the seagulls, please. Oh, that's much better. Now I have to pee. First, pre-order your copy of Sapphire Sunset, the first installment in the Sapphire Cove series, which goes on sale March 1st, 2022, from Blue Box Press, when a new member of the resort security department falls hard for the nephew of the wealthy family that owns the place, sparks fly, and sexy scandal ensues at Sapphire Cove. Uh, Yeah, could you pre-order that for me? I'm going to run to the little podcaster's room. Brandon! Come get this seagull! I can't help it if my writing sets the scene. I know what I'm going to set if someone doesn't come get this seagull. Where'd you get that sandwich? Sapphire Sunset, the first book in the Sapphire Cove series from C. Travis Rice. Now available for pre-order. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. <laughs> and well, and you're listening, what are they listening to? They're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And this is the month of love. And he was trying to do Barry White there at the top, and I think it just, he forgot the name of the show. Yeah, I did. I was so caught up in the role. Well, Barry probably doesn't listen to our shows. So. I, don't, I don't know if he's with us anymore. I don't think so. So I think it would be really, I, I don't know, maybe they have podcasts in the afterlife, but God, if I had all of it, I guess if I had all of eternity, I'd listen to all the podcasts. He is oh. in a place where they all hear all podcasts all the time. Oh, God. Yes. Oh, I know. What a nightmare. That sounds more like the other place. (laughs) I don't know. Not commenting on the spiritual fate of Barry White. He's just, I think he's not. Watch, we're going to get a Facebook comment on the Dinner Party Show's Facebook page. Barry White is actually alive and living in North Carolina. Here's his address. That would be great. Then I want another song from him (laughs) because I love me some Barry White. Barry White White was great. So, but this is the fucked up month of love here at TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric and we're bringing you the first part of a true crime pairing. The fucked up month of love. That's way better. Yeah, okay. Good. I was like, the month of love. Love, really? Hmm, I was trying to think, what are we doing this month? <laughs> so lovey-dovey. It was like, this certainly isn't it. This episode our, is. It's our, it's our take on love, which is morbid and murderous. Morbid and murderous month of love. Here we go. It's growing. The brand is growing. 
Um, Christopher once turned to me in the car. We were going somewhere, and he said, well, I'm thinking of writing a comic novel. And I said, in which thousands of people died due to the convergence of dark forces. And he went, yeah, something like that. Yeah, I was like, a few deaths here and there, just a couple hundred. Yeah. Ha, ha, ha. A comedy. Um, Okay, so this is a true crime TV club today. Next week will be what we call a true crime movie time. So we're doing a fact-based hour about a certain case, and then we're going to watch the film version of it to see how the film holds up. Today we are talking about Dominic Dunn's Power, Privilege, and Justice, Season 1, Episode 10, Phil Spector. And because the third is actually the anniversary of this of death. The, of the of the okay, yeah, death, murder. Are we gonna call it a murder? Are we gonna arrive at that conclusion at the end of this episode? Should we not? I think that that ship is really already sailed. Yeah. Like he was convicted and went to prison. So yeah, I I spoiler alert. Yeah. Yeah. It's a murder. It's like, a murder. Yeah, it's one of those like I think that that's not really be- well, we'll tell the story, but you'll see what I mean. I don't think that whether or not it's a murder is ultimately the story. Right. I don't either. Um, I think this is one of those Hollywood cases that we're going to opine on as Hollywood residents or West Hollywood residents. Uh, because we're start because Dominic Dunn. I mean, really, yeah. like this. Oh, and maybe my favorite part of it was the um, the dynasty opening mm-hmm. with the glasses and the, mm-hmm. the the scenes of murder and mayhem sliding past. On, yes, while they played played hip music and did fun, it was really it, was it great. made me feel old because the date <laughs> the date on the episode <laughs> was two thousand seven, and I was like, oh wow, is this how stuff from two thousand seven looks now? Old, <laughs> it looks old. I remember when all of that was new and flashy. It was in SD. That's how you knew the episode was old. You yeah. couldn't stream it in high definition. It is available on Amazon here in the United States. It's probably streamable. But, of course, the True Crime TV Club rule that I always repeat is there is no rule. You don't need to watch the episode to know what the hell we're talking about because we're so detailed and long-winded. We're going to yeah. serve the whole thing up for you. I don't know that you're necessarily – I don't want to guarantee that people are going to know what we're talking about. I'm not <laughs> sure we always know what we're talking about, but – but you don't have to watch the episode. We will detail the, what unfolds in the episode. Ever, Eric Shaw never overpromised yeah, Quinn. I, I That's what wanna, we call him around I here. I don't want people to come back and go, well, I want my money back because mm-hmm. I didn't really understand what the fuck you were talking about. I was like, <laughs> well, it was free, so I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm not really all that concerned. We can't return your time. Right, but, that, but that's the most valuable thing you got. It is. So. Mm. Yeah. Well, do you remember, we were friends when this happened. I don't remember us talking about this case ever. Honestly, and I hate to lead with this because it really kind of like takes all of the thunder out of this. Phil Spector was such a fucking lunatic <laughs> that it was like, oh, well, he finally murdered somebody. Yeah. That was kind of my reaction in right. the moment. And so I didn't really pay that much of attention to it as it unfolded. It was like, I, I think my reaction, and I, I can't prove this, but I think my reaction in real time was something like, wow, is that still going on? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, because it just seems so, like, he was one of those people. I There's a... There are people in the entertainment industry about whom you never hear anyone ever say a nice thing. Right. And it's a rule of thumb. I can't really, you know, I don't have actual definition, but it's it means it's true. Right. If you <laughs> I mean, never hear a nice thing. If you never hear anyone ever say anything nice about somebody, 
and yeah, it's probably because they're just horrible. And he's one of those people. And so I just really had never, every woman who'd ever had anything to do with him, most of the people who'd worked with him, and not to mention the fact that he had kind of become like nobody by the time he he, he hadn't done anything of significance by the time he died for a really long time, maybe right. 10, 20 years yeah. since he'd had a hit of any sort. So, And he was one of those people who he was behind the hit in a way that most people may not have been aware of. He was responsible for songs that you knew and loved and had heard in your youth, but you didn't necessarily know the name Phil Spector unless you were closely connected to the industry or really invested as a fan in the mechanics of the music industry. Like, I don't, is, am I wrong about that? I kind of, like, he had a, he was one of the, he was, he rem- he had a reputation like Timbaland or or somebody like mm-hmm. that. People who have st- producers who have stepped forward. What is um, um, Eilish's brother's name? Phineas. You know, mm-hmm. every now and again, or Calvin. Mark Ronson. Uh, no, he's a songwriter. Excuse me, Phil Spector. Was he a songwriter or was he more of Phil's, a producer? He was a songwriter. Okay, and yeah. he was a producer, and he created something called the Wall of Sound, yes. which was particularly effective on AM radio. Right, and that. Put, pushed him into a more sort of public kind of view. And then he had lots of dalliances. He married one of his um, leading ladies, like Barry Gordy. Mm-hmm. Like, But more than Barry Gordy, he was actually a songwriter. I don't know that Barry Gordy wrote music at all. Yeah, He was a producer and, um, you know, the, I don't know, CEO or executive director or whatever it is, A&R guy at, um, at, in, for Motown. But I don't know that... That he actually wrote music and Phil did. So yes. there, w- there was a part of him. He even, I think there was even some, but he never really stepped out as a singer. He really was a writer and a producer and and became famous for it yeah. in his own way. And then was such um, a publicity hound mm-hmm. that I think he called a lot of attention to himself because right. he was, you know, of the firm belief that, yeah, they're just singing my stuff. Like, I'm the one who's the star here. Yeah, right, right. It was very much his attitude, apparently. River Deep, Mountain High was his song. Uh, you lost, you've lost, lost That Loving Feeling was his song. I didn't know this going into this. This was all in the special. I thought, oh, my God, he wrote he that, he wrote that, Beatles. he wrote that. I, yeah. There was some discussion of at some level of him, like, having input on let it be on, right like there was he was very he was yeah he was a big deal while he was a big deal it was not nothing so um i guess we should just dive into sort of the facts of it because i think a lot of this is going to start to flesh out as we as we get more into it but but i i remember thinking the same thing you did just from the news footage when i saw him on camera i was like that guy's a lunatic he, he was not, a drug he, totally wheel, he was him. a gun wheeling drug yeah taking paranoid lunatic that yeah. was kind of my, you know, from the sidelines impression, who had sort of drifted into obscurity. And it was like, it was unfortunate, but it wasn't a huge surprise. His ex-wife had really, Ronnie uh, Spector, the the Ronettes, really had, once she got away from him, had really made it clear that how bad the abuse was and, and that she was held prisoner. And like, it was not... It was not a, a secret at all. Yeah. Was, there was no secret about it. So, yeah, he was this terrible man who had finally killed some poor woman. 
So I, this is going to be another moment of me revealing what a superficial Southern California bitch I am at heart. But this is the only, the thing that struck me, the detail that struck me the most when this story broke, which is where we begin this episode of Dominic Dunn's Power, Privilege, and Justice, is that this murder took place in this massive celebrity mansion in Alhambra, California, which does not play host to many mansions. And I remember thinking, and I actually think this played more of a role in the case, which I'll get to when we get yeah. into it. What the fuck were these people doing in Alhambra? Nothing against Alhambra, but it's like, it's you know. It's kind of a nice yeah. middle-class neighborhood. It's not the sort of, it's not Beverly Hills. No. It's not Bel Air. It's not the sort of, it's not where people typically, I I will say that it is on a, in a part of town where the views might have been incredible. Of course. Got a great lot and could build cheaply and yeah. built a really big um, mansion there. But, yeah, he had lived in Beverly Hills for a really long time and yeah. then later in his life had moved to um, Alhambra. But it was, yeah, yeah, I, I get that sort okay. of feeling. Every now and, and again I have there. those kinds of reactions about about Los Angeles stuff. It was sort of like when we did the um, – the, the the British show where everybody yes. reacted and said, Barking? Yes. Whatever it was they were talking about. Their 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 family members were turning up murdered in this part of London where there's like they would never go to Barking. What was he doing? Was he doing barking? barking. It was just very It was really British. Strange. It was very it was like yeah. yeah. So Okay. I guess it's provincial. February 3rd, 2003, the Alhambra Police Department gets a nine one one call from a limo driver named Adriano de Souza. He is Phil Spector's driver, and he says, right off, I think my boss killed somebody. He describes a scene that he's viewing while he's on the phone with the 911 operator, saying there is a lady on the floor, and his boss has a gun in his hands. It's 5 a.m. on a Monday morning. The and his boss said, I think I killed somebody. Did he say it at that point? Yes, I think that's what, that's, the, the police roll up. I don't know if Adriano, the limo driver, said that on the 911 call that my boss said he just killed someone. But when the police roll up, which is in short order, I think Adriano said to him, yeah, he came walking out the front door of his house after I heard a gunshot carrying the gun and said, I think I just killed someone, which will become an important detail <laughs> given that it's a confession of murder. I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh. I just but really, yeah. yeah. Like, I think it's a really, it's the whole show. It's like, well, there it is. There it is. I'm not yeah. sure what we really have to discuss after that, which is kind of my reaction to the whole case to begin with, I yes. think, was like, oh, yeah, okay, but that, that, that scans. By the time the police show up, Spectre is not saying that anymore. He invites the police to come in. He's clearly intoxicated, stinks of booze, according to the cops, and he says, you won't believe what just happened to me, this crazy woman. She comes to my house with me, and she kills herself right here. And he's also, I think, not cooperating with the cops. Like, they're like, put the gun down, stop talking, <laughs> and he won't do it. And so they tase him twice because the taser doesn't work. Just one of my favorite parts of the, the story. The first time. So they have to re-tase him. Um, meanwhile, behind him, I mean, behind him within, I think, viewing distance of the house's front She's door. sitting in the front hallway in a chair on the front hallway with her purse. Yes. Hanging from her shoulder. Absolutely. A woman on her way out the door. Yes. Um, shot in the head and slumped. And I believe we are shown the actual crime scene photos in this special. I think so. It was. It was pretty. Yeah. That was. Yeah. They didn't do like the close up, but it was. 
It was pretty awful. So there's blood flowing out of her mouth and onto the right side of her dress, and under her left ankle is a snub-nosed 38 Colt Cobra revolver, and it has been wiped down. There are no fingerprints and on it at all. And placed there, because it used to be in Phil's hand when he first came out to report to his driver that he killed the lady that they brought to the house. And so Spectre tells the cops, I don't even know this woman, and she has the audacity to come into my house and blow my blow her brains out? That's that's the attitude, right? Yeah. It's the... the the effrontery of it all. So this is when you see some police skill involved, which is they get him to the station while he's drunk so that he sobers up while he's in the interrogation room. Right. And they start to see his inability to kind of keep up the story and his changing emotional or state. Or remember what happened. Yes, or Any exactly. of those things, yeah. Uh, so... As we said earlier, he's a highly influential record producer. So or there's used a, to be. Right, and that will become, I think, important as we discuss the movie next week. Uh, the house is 8,500 square feet, 10 rooms, and police find blood smears on the door and in the stairwell. 10 bedrooms, right? 10 bedrooms, right. Yeah. Absolutely, 10 rooms. 10 rooms is still a pretty big house, right. but 10 bedrooms is a really big house. In an adjacent bathroom, there's a cloth diaper? Just like, what the, f- what? I don't even sort of know what to say about that. And it's been wetted and has blood on it. Oh, no, okay. Um, he hires Robert Shapiro, the famed Simpson attorney. He sets up a wall of publicity that, in the words of the special, allows him to spin his own narrative. He's released on a million dollars bail and immediately heads off to the Bel Air Hotel to camp out because his house is overrun with the media. At this point, our... And also, not for nothing, a crime scene. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Dominic Dunn, our host... Should we... Tell us about Dominic Dunn, Eric Shaw Quinn. Dominic Dunn is just sort of this wonderful kind of um, entertainment industry slash literary phenomenon. He was, for years, I think a pretty successful um, executive producer, Hollywood executive mm-hmm. um Kind of the toast of Hollywood. Right. Um, I think the toasting got really out of hand. Mm. And uh, he kind of, I don't know if he drunk away the career or he just, you know, his luck changed and things went bad and he became kind of a pariah and the rich wife left him and the kids Mm. were whatever. And he was kind of down and out. And then he started, he, I think he cleaned up. I think he sobered up and, um, Started writing, and his daughter was murdered. I, was that the? Yeah. Was that the? I can't remember the, the, which caused which, or if he had started I wouldn't writing. Be surprised. But yeah. His daughter was really was hideous, and yeah. it was one of those things. And he wrote about the trial. Mm-hmm. I think I don't know if he wrote a book. I think he wrote a book about yeah. the trial and the trying to get justice for his daughter. Um, it was very public and very uh, traumatic. Really awful, sort of. Ex-boyfriend showed up with a baseball bat and beat her yeah. to death in her driveway in front of her house. It was horrible, really hideous. Like, horrible. how is that? Even, do we need a trial anyway? Yeah. Um, and we do. We yeah. do. We believe in the due uh, process, due process, right. and the judicial system. But it was really anyway. So it was hard, and it was some. So he wrote about that from the perspective of the family, and it gave him a kind of insight, and it became sort of his beat. Tina Brown at Vanity Fair, I think, kind of made his. Mm-hmm new career for him, she hired him to cover high-profile celebrity kind of cases, and he became this spokesperson. He also wrote a series of books that were sort of Romano Clay. They were were based on 
um, actual crimes. So that gave him some more sort of literary cachet as well. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So Dominic kind of set up this, he kind of staked out this place of the mm-hmm. the, the high-profile crime reporter. I think it's become its own job. Right. Like Nancy Grace and all of those people have sort of are following in the footsteps, but he kind of created that role. It became a specific thing where his personality in reporting the crime became a part of the coverage itself. And his insider knowledge of how Hollywood and entertainment works, which is what he brings to this special. So when he chimes in, he's not just summarizing the case. He's saying, I met Phil Spector. I heard this about Phil Spector from somebody who was in a position to know. They also interview John Lennon's former girlfriend who says that he would, Phil Spector would fire off guns during recording sessions. Yeah. You know, and John Lennon said, you can shoot me, but don't do something that's going to damage my hearing by just firing off a gun. Yeah. <laughs> Which is how the story went. So he's got a, he's got a history of waving guns around. Dominic said that he was, um, that he thought it was a tragedy, but that it was, he was not surprised. Not surprised. Which I think was honestly kind of my reaction in the moment of like, of oh, course, that yeah. finally happened. Well, that's too bad. The autopsy shows that Lana died instantly from a gunshot in her mouth, but her blood alcohol level was 0.12, which is over the legal limit. Vicodin was in her system. Not a whole lot of it. I think the equivalent of two pills of whatever she was prescribed. Um, there's gunshot residue on her hands. But, but it's just... worth noting that they don't recommend that you take your Vicodin with yes, vodka. absolutely. Like, that's not actually on the list. So probably not in the best condition to be dealing with somebody who's of like Phil. I have my own theory about all of that, oh, which I'll reveal. All right, then. Gunshot residue on her hands, but just two tiny particles on Spectre's. He could have washed his hands. I didn't find that compelling at all. He's not dead. He can go to the bathroom after the gun is fired. Works. Yeah, I don't know how that works. So we go into some of Phil Spector's backstory here. We interview people from his past. He was born in 1940 in New York City. His dad killed himself when he was in grade school. At age 12, he moved out to L.A. with his mother and sister. At 17, he formed a rock and roll band called the Teddy Bears. They had a number one hit. I was that caught me off guard. I was like, "Oh, how cute! You had a band as whoa number one hit when yeah. you were 17. That Holy he shit!" Wrote. Yeah, to know him is to love him, which was also a song that I knew. I absolutely know that song. Like you would be like you would be hard pressed not to know all of Phil's songs. Yeah, he was pretty. He was pretty famous and hugely successful. Right, and now we have a moment where my notes go a little sideways because I wrote by twelve years old he was a millionaire and moved back to L.A. and that cannot be right. I don't think that's right, but I think it was more like twenty. I think that I think twenty two is probably what I meant to type. Yeah, he's he was really a young man when. He came back fully successful and fully whatever. Um, so 
He was a big deal. So his passion project, his song to beat all the songs, he thought, was a song called River Deep Mountain High that he wrote for, I guess, Ike and Tina Turner or Tina Turner and somebody else? Probably still Ike and Tina at that time. And I didn't know this. I consider it a classic. I know the song well. It failed to crack the top 40 when it was released, and it pitched him into a tailspin of, of despair. He became a hermit for a while and didn't leave his house. But I was like, that song? I thought that song was a monster hit. But the thing that's interesting about this time period is this is a really young person with an enormous amount of resources at a time when very little of even the like young pe- young successful people in the entertainment industry get into terrible trouble now mm-hmm. and there's a lot more safety rails you know yeah. now than there were back in the 60s I just think he it set him on a course with self destruction here because there was nobody and no entity mm-hmm. to rein him in to tell him no and so he just went off on this sort of whatever tangent he happened to want to go off on and right. there was no real stopping him and until pretty recently there's been a long standing tradition in the entertainment of industry of well, he's really a nightmare, but he made us a bunch of money, right. so we'll just sort of look the other way while yeah. he's doing whatever horrible fill-in-the-blank thing that it is that he's doing. I think we're finally arriving at a point of like, no, that's really not okay. No. But it never was. But he's textbook the case of that that point. So he arrives home. He's in a bad mood. He didn't get a song that he wrote, didn't go the way that he he wanted to. And he's got limitless resources, right? And a paranoid, I think, probably drunken and drug-addled mind. It's not clear, but yes. that's alluded to. So, yeah, and I, there was a little bit of whoever was being interviewed about this, and there were a lot of people interviewed in this special. But like, so the River Deep Mountain High flop was 1966, and then in 1968 he marries uh, Ronnie Bennett, and that is the abusive marriage that got. That word of that did leak out. Yeah. And so there's a justification sort of happening. Well, he was terrible to Ronnie because he had this big failure. And it was like, no, I think it's more what you just described, which was he was on this path of wild self-indulgence. He was infantile. Nobody could tell him what what to do. And that's, you know, a time period and a bad choice that we made. But it was a choice that we made for a really long time. So – According to this special, he didn't do much of note in between marrying Ronnie Bennett and being abusive in 1998 when he moved into the Pyrenees Castle. And the and the detail about him moving into the castle was really only relevant to us because it was where a murder took place several years later. But was there really a gap in his career that huge? I mean, were there any songs <laughs> between 68 and 07, I guess, which is when the—no, I'm sorry, 03 is when the murder happened. I think there were probably some in the 70s, and I think that's probably about the end of it. Mm-hmm. Like, that seems like I'd have to look it up. I honestly, I didn't research that part of the story. Yes. Um, but I I think that Phil kind of dried up after that. Right. And I think that there was enough of a catalog at that point mm-hmm. of really classic rock and roll that was never going to be off anybody's playlist or probably off of yeah. some billboard list ever again for the rest of his there life. There are no royalties like music royalties. Yeah. If you don't know that about the... But you can live off a good Christmas song for the rest of your right. life. You can make your whole family. <laughs> like, like it, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, those kinds... Yeah, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is like... It has made her... I have no idea, but she's yeah. the queen of Christmas. 
literally, with her mm. own castle and huge crown and right. vault full of jewels and gold bars. Totally. So let's talk about Lana Clarkson, because she is the victim in this case. Um, she was uh, Southern California-born, so she knew the state. She had been struggling to break out as an, a model and actress for many years. She had just entered her 40s at the time of the murder. But as a teen, she was pursuing modeling and acting jobs. She got small parts in the movies Scarface and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And she was the star of a Roger Corman film called Barbarian Queen. She had a reputation for being good with stunts and handling guns. So in January 2003, Lana has yet to hit her big break. Uh, she takes a job manning the velvet rope at the House of Blues Foundation Room. Now, the House of Blues that we're talking about was here in West Hollywood. Uh, it was just a couple of blocks. Not from, too far from where we're recording right, this right now. Are, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Foundation Room. Did you ever go to the Foundation Room? I went there a couple times. For like, and nothing glamorous for like a teen beat party. <laughs> I, I will tell you, I honestly can't tell you. I yeah. just, I have no idea. The House of Blues was one of those places that I was always so singularly unimpressed with mm -hmm. that I just, like, it was like, oh, we're here again. <laughs> it's kind of smelly in here. Do we have to stay? It like, was a that tourist was always trap. kind of yeah. my reaction to that place. It was just kind of, and it was kind of built to be a dump. Yeah, it was. Like, it was never built to, so it never looked great. It never looked nice, and it was kind of beat up and not well-maintained. I think it made a fortune for the promoters but who it used was, it. But it was like a set decoration job. Yeah, it was supposed to look... I think the first one was in New Orleans. Dan Aykroyd opened it in New Orleans, and it had this sort of vaguely French quartery dive club vibe. And then here, it just looked like a ramshackle shack that had been dropped on this hill right, off, right on the Sunset and so Strip. I, I have been there, and my guess would be probably yes. I've been yeah. in the, but I just really didn't like it. At such a profound level that I can't really answer whether or not—I can't say for sure. Like, I've been there, and it was whatever. Gospel brunch was probably the only thing they ever did that I didn't just completely despise. Right. Absolutely. So I, the special, I think, kind of flips around a bit, like goes from their meeting, but the— this is basically what happens, and this is where I have some big opinions, okay? So she gets this job manning the velvet rope at the foundation room. Phil Spector rolls up one night with another friend of his. Um, she doesn't recognize him, and so she won't let him in. She thinks he's a—she calls him Miss. She calls him Miss. Because he wears these— outlandish wigs. He was yeah. bald and wore just crazy wigs all his life. Good for him. I mean, yeah. no judgment, but that was actually maybe something about him that I kind of liked, but not to end his music. I yeah. actually do like his music, but he was, yeah, that was it. So someone comes up and whispers in Lana's ear, actually, that he's a huge mo he's a music producer. You gotta <laughs> stop calling him Miss. Yeah, stop calling him Miss. That's Mr. Spector. And so she lets him in, and he's there drinking with his friend. The friend leaves, and... Um, he, he calls gets into a fight with his friend because she won't drink. I thought that was it. We later discover he was with two different friends that evening. The first one testifies against him, and the second one testifies in his defense. The first one he has dinner with at oh, the you're grill, right. and she says he was really drunk, and I had told him to drop me off. So he goes and picks up another friend who's like, he was fine. He wasn't drunk. We were having fun. He takes her to House of Blues. Natasha. She's right. also friends with Jordan. <laughs> Jordan Ampersand's friend, Natasha. Yes. So, um, and then he takes her to House of Blues, which is she's with him when he gets denied entry. 
Then he gets entry. I think it gets so late that the friend leaves. It's about two in the morning. And so this is where I think, this is really what I believe happened. Okay. He invited Lana back to his house for a drink. Right. And he did not tell her the house was in Alhambra. And so she gets in the car thinking we're headed down the street to Beverly Hills. Because I think the limo driver later testifies, and this is, again, the limo driver who will place the 911 call. They immediately started watching a movie in the back seat, I guess on screens or whatever. And I'm telling you, he put that movie on to distract her from the fact that they were going to be in the car for almost an hour at 2 in the morning to get to his house in Alhambra. And I think from the minute she walked into that house and realized how isolated she was, she wanted to leave. That's my theory, that there was never any... So the story that's going to bubble up in the defense that she was looking to kill herself... Well, I think it's really valid because Alhambra is a good long way from West Hollywood. It is a a drive. Los Angeles is... One of the most monumental things about Los Angeles is how huge... Huge it is. Right. This place is the size of a state, Thir- three to four thousand square miles of of city. So you could be in town and still really be a long way from right. another part of town, and that's very much the case with that. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, that really that would factor in. In fact, I, I, and she was it was an uncomfortable thing. She it was kind of a make good for having fucked up in the first place. Yes, I right. think, and. Maybe there was some aspect of thinking that he might be of a positive influence in her career. Maybe, but like she didn't want to be a musician. She wanted to be an actor. I don't think that was it. I think it was make good for the job that she had because the job she had was really good. And it was new. And she kind of fucked up. And she was new on the job. Yeah. She was new on the job. So, yeah. So, anyway, we jumped around a little bit there. We'll get back into it. So, the, um, the coroner's report comes out several months after the murder, and the, Dr. Penna, who did it, the autopsy, is unequivocal. He says this is a homicide. He doesn't say there are any suicidal tendencies in Lana's background, even though they will later talk about emails that are the same emails any struggling actress would send her friends yeah. about just, I wish I could break out. I'm... You know, the doubt that artists feel, all of that, the defense would later try to hold up as evidence that she was suicidal. So the DA formally charges Spectre with second-degree murder. Uh, We then began a succession of lawyers, which was maybe, I thought, my favorite part of the piece. He he fires Robert Shapiro, which says to me, Robert Shapiro said, if you do this, I'm going to quit. And he did it, (laughs) and he quit. He replaces Shapiro with Leslie Abramson, who defended the Menendez brothers in both their trials. But as we see from multiple press conferences, Phil Spector could not keep his mouth shut, and Leslie Abramson would be at the mic trying to defend him, and then Phil Spector would start, and she would turn around and literally take him by his wrist in an effort to shut him up. Didn't work. And he would still not shut up, and so she quit. So she quits, and he goes, and he gets the lawyer from New York who defended John Gotti successfully, I'm, we might add. Because, you know, hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Spectre then begins attacking the DA personally in the press. Always a great strategy in a criminal defense. Re- calling him Hitler. Yeah, and it had Nazi stormtroopers right. who work for him. Just really that it was like, wow, that's that's an interesting approach. He kept doubling down on getting knocked down at the door and tased, which is yes. like, 
Yeah, but you were kind of like, yeah. you know, like they were they were asking you, yeah. yeah. And and again with Christopher's notes strike again. I would like to add that Inspector also apparently had a 256-year-old wife <laughs> named Rochelle. <laughs> <laughs> on his arm when he showed up in court. She was one of the undead. She, she was, was a, one of the immortals. She was a friend of Pandora's. Um, yeah. yeah, no, no, that that wasn't that wasn't the case. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co-host and producing partner, Christopher Rice. He's got not one, but four new books coming out in 2022. But today, I'd like to tell you about one in particular, a standalone thriller called Decimate. It's the terrifying story of what happens to our kitchen here at the studio um, when I ask Christopher to make the tea. Yeah, no. When I said improvise the promo, I didn't say you could make shit up. I am not making this up. Look at that kitchen. Okay. Hi, party people. Decimate is actually a thriller about telekinesis and near-death experiences. The page-turning tale of a woman who becomes convinced her brother is being held hostage by a supernatural force following his death in a fiery plane crash. It has nothing to do with tea or our kitchen, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And while it is spine-tingling and terrifying, it is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to order off of Amazon to clean up that kitchen. Will you shut up about tea and our kitchen? Oh, I never shut up about tea. So I took a quick look during the break, and it looks like the 80s were kind of when it really sort of stopped. There was one recording in with somebody called Star Sailor in yeah. 2003. Um, he released a box set, which actually was like Greatest Hits in 91. Whoa. Okay. Um, he worked with the Ramones. So okay. He had some presence in the 80s, um, and then that's kind of it. So literally after the 70s, and it was, you know, like it's a star-studded career it's yeah you know it's imagine mm -mm. wow with yeah. john lennon it's that kind of career so like okay that's mm -hmm. that's pretty high cotton um and still in rotation so still earning the estate money even though right right so the trial this was the part of this case I didn't know about that I thought was the most dramatic and interesting. It was what the prosecution was able to pull at the trial. I did not know this. I thought this was really an interesting moment in the, in the story, maybe the most interesting. So in a pretrial hearing, and again, this is if anyone out there is listening, we should contact our old friend Marsha Clark about this. In a pretrial hearing, prosecution wins the right to introduce statements made by Spectre following his arrest. And then they don't use those statements in their opening statement. 
which completely throws the defense off their game because the defense has prepared an opening statement which is going to address those statements because they thought if they're going to go to the trouble of having a pretrial hearing about them, it's fait accompli. we got to be ready. Right. So that because there was enough, like, because there was more of a case to be made for, well, did he say this or did he say that? Or did he mean this or did he mean that? If you included the statements. But if you didn't and you just talked about what a misogynistic, lunatic, gun-toting, mm-hmm. murderous, abusive um, asshole... Phil actually was and how not a surprise it was that he had finally murdered somebody, then what are you going to say back to that? And so if the prosecution is not putting any statements that he said to the police before his arrest or on the night of uh, into the record, the defense then has to put Spectre on the stand to say what he said if they want some of those positive things right. on there. So then it's all fair game. Which I was is, like, wow, this is It some, was really yeah. – it was a good strategy because – the um, the 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 defense attorney actually said he asked for a break and said, "I feel like I am standing here with my pants off." I mean, yeah, no, the guy who got John Gotti off was completely thrown and like, said so. Got yeah. up on his feet and said to the courtroom, "I am completely like I feel right. like I'm naked in this courtroom." Like he copped to it. They just wrecked them right out of the gate. I, and so Dominic Dunn breaks in at this point to say, to tell us all at his office table that he was at this trial, that he went to the bathroom when Spectre was in the bathroom. Not deliberately, I don't think. Really a description, though. What an extensive description of being I in the bathroom really... with another person. The coat. <laughs> the Spectre the had opened his Edwardian frock coat, as he called it, to block access to the urinals on either side of him, the one that he was using, so that nobody could get close. And um, Dominic Dunn clearly hung around, seeing if he so could he get any reaction. To yes. see if he could, whatever, at least get to a stall or right. to a urinal at some point. <laughs> he bathroom. didn't want to pee next He said, I didn't want to pee next to him anyway. Right. So. I don't even want to pee next to you, Phil. Um, okay, so, and this was my other favorite part. This was, again, about the New York lawyer who he decided to do a certain kind of lawyering that might work in New York, but boy, did it not work in a courthouse in Los Angeles, California. And the clip is really choice. So they're putting these women on the stand to testify. Yeah. Over the years, Phil Spector pulled out a gun and kept me from leaving his house. Exactly what he is accused of having done to Lana Clarkson. And so the New York lawyer is pointing at what you want. And I mean, that judge just took him apart. You will not point at people in my courtroom. You will not yell at people in my courtroom. You will not. And so that. And you will not interrupt me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Eric Shaw Quinn when the delivery person fucks up. <laughs> it was not happening. Yeah. He was not having it. And it really did. And it shut him down again in front of the entire court. It was right. not like some, you know, admonishment in chambers he took him down in front so this is twice now in opening statements and then here again with trying trying to use that sort of bombastic kind of east coast style which i guess you know is a thing and and they said no we're not having that we're not doing that and so Mm -hmm. all of a sudden that lawyer bruce whatever his name bruce cutler he's got to go back to new york he's got a tv project in new york he forgot he had a roast in the oven (laughs) And had to go back to New York. So there's a there's a big team that's left behind, Roger Rosen and a woman named Linda, who we will talk a lot more about next week. 
Um, but they stay, it's not like he is without a defense suddenly, but this big showboat that he hired specifically because of the guy's resume, uh, that's over. Because the judge was not having it. Yeah, so that didn't pan out. So what what the special covers next is a lot of what we talked about already about the timeline of the evening. He Phil Spector went out to drink with two separate friends. One ditched him because he was so drunk. The other one had a more sort of tepid testimony. He was fine. He didn't seem out of sorts. He goes to the foundation room. Lana tries to deny him entrance. She realizes who he is. She gets in the car. So we're now hearing testimony from D'Souza, who is the limo driver who made the 911 call at the beginning of the special. And he says, I was with Spectre the entire night. He is a former Brazilian military officer. Uh, he escorted Lana and Spectre to the limo. Uh, Spectre was insisting that they go to the castle, and she didn't want to go. I'm telling you because he told her it was in Alhambra. <laughs> and finally she caved and said just one drink, which she never would have said if she had known they were going to Alhambra. Never. Um in the back seat, they watch an old movie called Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye. I've never heard of that movie. Have you heard of that movie? It sounded really like it was, you know, it was like, wow, that's that's yeah. symbolic. That's mm-hmm. foreboding. Mm-hmm. You couldn't have picked that better. Uh, they go back to the house. The driver is waiting outside. He testifies that shortly before 5 a.m. he hears the gunshot. Spectre emerges, gun in hand, says to him, I think I killed somebody. And he can see Clarkson's body through the open front door. So defense attorney Brad Bunyan, who's been left, he's the last man standing on the defense team, was to say that the driver didn't understand English and had misheard what Spectre said. Uh, But the driver stays completely composed during the cross-examination. There's no throwing him because, and that's usually what happens to someone who's telling the truth. If you're Brazilian ex-military and you survived, yeah, Yeah. you can, you've got, you've made a pretty stern stuff. Exactly. Um, so the friends, they bring in, a, and this is the thing, this is the thing we have learned in True Crime TV Club, is that you can bring in a forensic expert to testify to pretty much anything. Anything you want. So it's like they bring in five to say that there's no way Specter fect, uh, could have pulled the gun or uh, fired the gun. And then they bring in five who said that he absolutely fired the gun. But yeah. what it comes down to is blood spatter evidence gunshot residue and uh that's really it it's a, i don't think the gunshot residue ends up playing as big a role it's all about the fact that there was not a ton of blood on phil specter's coat how they secured and found out i guess he must have been wearing the coat when the cops rolled up still like i don't know if they how they determined since they were alone together that this was the coat i guess specter didn't say no i wasn't wearing that coat that's the wrong coat or whatever but um, they claimed to have the coat that he was wearing. He was the wearing time, a the gun white wore. coat. Right. So it was not unsubtle. So there's no visible um, blood, but forensic tests bring up tiny splatters on the arm. And they're mist. mist-like droplets. And they are within. They're also present on Lana within two to three feet of her face. And those are important details because that's really the only forensic evidence that I think is put into play. Um, so the defense puts Lana on trial, which right. is never a good strategy. Always a bad plan. They have their own experts who say it's a suicide. I don't know how they said that, or I, I guess they analyzed her you emails. You can say anything you want, I think. You know, yeah. like you can say that we think this proves that. And Dominic Dunn's opinion, 
Beautiful women do not commit suicide by shooting themselves in the face. Anna Karenina threw herself in front of a train. Right. Like, I, it's one of those, like, mm, really? What Anna Karenina is a made-up person, right? I know, yeah. but it's still by a man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Um, the defense keeps harping on the fact that the coat just doesn't have enough blood on it. They say this alone puts Spectre on the other side of the room when Lana fired the gun into her own mouth. Lana's friends testify that she was a heavy drinker and that she was despondent about her career. They produced damning emails and letters, which we talked about earlier. Who, what friends are these? I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, uh, the streets of Los Angeles, you'd have to climb over the bodies right. if that if this was a true scenario. Yeah, like, exactly. It, it is a very difficult business. M- mostly you get the most thing you hear the most is no. Yeah. And... It's you, you make it when you make it. Jennifer Coolidge is experiencing a rather remarkable kind of moment in her career, but she has been many years, like, I don't know about sleeping on people's sofa, but mm-hmm. really kind of coasting at the very limits of success and is now suddenly the toast of Hollywood. But And may be forgotten again year after next. Mm-hmm. Louise Fletcher won the um, Academy Award for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and kind of never did anything else of significance afterwards. Like, it is a really challenging business, and people get down and despondent and have a hard time and don't succeed, and some people never get a break, and Lana seems to have been one of them, and that's kind of the way the cookie crumbles, and it's not the end of the world. It's one of the things I like about Los Angeles because... Mm -hmm. Because that is so such an underlying tenet of this place, there is no disgrace in it. Nobody sees you as being, you know, as long as you're trying, it's like, okay, anything could happen at any moment. And and that's the th- that's the real mark here rather than necessarily. But there's only like a couple of hundred people who succeed like Julia Roberts or mm-hmm. George Clooney. And that's great. But that's a very small group of people. And Dominic Dunn says something to that effect as well, having been in Hollywood himself. He says, you know, I, I have had failures. Oh, he was a yeah. huge Hollywood failure. Right. And he resurrected his career. But there was a long period of it not being great. And he was down. And he yeah. still didn't shoot himself in the mouth in somebody's front hall. Yeah, totally. It's, it's a sort of othering argument, if that makes sense, to make about entertainment people. As though they're so hopelessly fucked up. They're so off the yeah. rails anyway. It's, you know, it's like. Because everybody else yeah. is such a walk oh, in yeah, the park. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the jury deliberates for 12 days and they're deadlocked at 10 to 2 and a mistrial is declared because the foreman believes it's pos- there's enough reasonable doubt that she could have killed herself. So at reasonable doubt is the way the, yeah. su- the system works. So good. Good. 13 months later, October 2008, a second trial opens. Alan Jackson is still the lead prosecutor. 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 He's the guy who outfoxed the <laughs> the big New York uh, mafia attorney. Right. Specter has one attorney now, Jerome Weinberg, from the San Francisco area. It's not the same defense team that he worked with the first time. However, his strategy is tr- is to introduce more stories of Phil Spector pulling guns on people because his contention is that he does this all the time and never means to harm anyone. No, it's just, you know, good fun. It's just good fun. They dive further into Lana's past drug use, which seems to amount to her taking Vicodin for headaches. Okay. But the prosecution this time puts her mother on the stand, and she testifies that they went shopping that day for her new job, for her to buy new shoes. And the contention is suicidal women do not go out to buy new shoes. That's not something they're thinking about. Suicidal people may not. I just, I have to say, just in this moment of like, that's one of those, like, 
I think that's okay. That's a reasonable contention, but the suicide is a momentary decision. Yeah. For most people, I think. I think that it's and for people who have survived the attempt, it is one that they regret almost instantly. That mm-hmm. it it is not a rational decision. It is not made for the most part, and it is not made in a very considered way. So I think it is perfectly possible to have bought groceries and new shoes and still kill yourself and have it be part of your pathology. Mm-hmm. We we do that, I think it sort of it's fast and loose with other with people's mental health. And mm-hmm. I, I think I think there is it is very much a I think it is very possible for it to be a very considered decision and I think it is also possible for it to be very much in the moment. Yeah. Naomi Judd was supposed to receive a major award and begin a tour mm-hmm. of with her daughter and mm-hmm. their band like the next day yeah. and shot herself. So yeah. it didn't prevent her from killing herself. I think that 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 when people act surprised when Chesley I can't remember her last name. The 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 correspondent on um, Extra, the former mm-hmm. Miss America, mm-hmm. killed herself recently. Everybody was so startled because of just that thing. There was nothing about right. her behavior around it. So I'm not crazy about that notion about. Well, I think it puts an undue pressure on the family members to have predicted it or been able to see it. You know, I, and so and and it, and it says that there would be. This proves that it couldn't happen. Like you need yeah. to be vigilant and look after the people in your life right. because you need to do that, not because oh well she bought new shoes so she couldn't possibly be yeah um, wanting to kill herself. Anyway, I, I'm yeah. sorry. I just I, that was one of those things where I was like, well, I guess that's a case, but yeah. They find him guilty of second-degree murder for heaven's sakes. on April 13th, 2009, and he is sent to prison, and they take away his wigs. They, den- they deny his request to wear a cat. These notes, this was really a great week for the notes. This was really a great he week He wanted to wear a cat? He wanted to wear a cat. I think that would have been really painful. No, he but, wanted to wear a hat. <laughs> but it would have stuck to his head, really. Those claws, I mean. They don't let you have cats in prison. I don't think so. So he requested a yarmulke, have, and they so gave you, it to him. So you can't take your um, your personal support peacock to no, prison with you? No, you cannot. You cannot. Unless you're the Gucci lady, because she got the best, the, the Gucci killer. She got the best oh prison God. deal ever. She got let out, went to parties, all that sort of stuff. Maybe she could have Had a peacock. Had her hair done. Had a suite in prison. I'd love Okay. That. Reggiani. Okay. So, so. Th- those are the facts of this case. Next week, we're going to tackle what David Mamet apparently thinks of this case because uh, not too long after, he did a movie on HBO called Phil Spector with Helen Mirren and Al Pacino. Pacino plays Spector. Helen Mirren, when I watched this, I was like, I don't know who Helen Mirren plays, but we'll find out and dig into that more. But. Yeah, you you had the experience. You watched the Phil Spector movie when it came out. I watched the Phil Spector movie when it got nominated for a bunch of awards. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, well, maybe yeah. this is something that I need to have paid more attention to because I think I had the same reaction to the movie that I had to the trial of like, oh, that lunatic yeah. finally killed somebody. I don't want to watch that. Yeah. So, But you are now armed with more facts 
we are both armed with more facts, and so we are going. He's doing and a, arms and a Dominic Dunn yes, special. Like, I've got it all. On, I've got it going on, babe. Totally. Plus, we have a special surprise guest from the past. Um, oh God! Yes. To, oh yeah. All to right. Include in next week's show. Yes, that's right. We have a surprise guest from the past who was mentioned in the course of this show. If you want to go back and see if you can predict who it is, we would say we were having a giveaway, but it takes us a year to pull those off. So yeah, we don't want to you, put you through that. We're just lying, and we don't want to put you through that. And we'll never do it. So. I, I know we're we're gonna get better at that, but we're gonna have to hire an assistant. I think we've been saying that we were gonna get better at that for a really long time, so we'll see. We, Shea Butters, you're fired. We wished you don't fire him, and it'll only get worse. Um, yeah. Now we'll see if we get better at that, but we would like to get better at that. We aspire to be better at that. Okay, and you know what's coming up later in the month? I don't. We're gonna try. To, well, we're gonna try to sort things out with a certain critic at large who oh, did not show sakes. up a few months. Yeah, we're gonna oh, just. Oh, for heaven's sake! We're gonna sort it out. We have gone to the party people for their feedback. We have some feedback as we have armed ourselves with because the facts of the case. You can't fool the party people. You party can fool people some of the people fooled. some of the time, but you can't fool the party people. Nope. Period. Nope. You can't fool them. And the month of fucked up love, is that what we're calling it? The month of morbid and terrifying love? Like The month of fucked up love works for me. The month of toxic love. Toxic love. Toxic love month here at TDPS presents Christopher and Eric. All right. Um, What we will never talk about again, because we talked about it all last month and Angelina Farmer has had it, is the fact that you are moving. Oh, Angelina doesn't want to hear about that anymore? <laughs> she just made a comment. She's like, is he moving, really? I hadn't heard he was moving. Is he moving? Is he moving? Yes, he's moving. <laughs> well, I haven't. And to be perfectly fair, it's going to be a really, it's going to be a while. So, um, yeah, buckle up. Prissy Angelina. Renovation just Month. buckle up. Yes, we're moving Prissy into Prissy Renovation the, Month will be next week. Getting it ready for, getting the castle ready for me to move in. It's not an Alhambra, though. Huh? It's not an Alhambra. And listen, I don't want to sound like a snob. I'm telling you, I love... All, I no. love all Southern California equally, except for, you know, a few parts. I don't drive, so I can't yeah. walk to the studio from Alhambra. So but no. I am telling you, when he told that woman they had to go to Alhambra, he, something happens. She should have gotten out at the light. <laughs> she should have gotten <laughs> Yeah, I got to go. Bye. Bye, yeah, I'll see you. I'll see you. All right. So next week is a true crime movie time. Phil Spector, it is streamable on HBO Max and probably nowhere else because it was an HBO production. So I don't think I think you're going to have to find it on their platforms, whatever those are for you. And you might be able to, I don't know. Yes. Buy it. But true. Absolutely. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.